Good morning, everybody. Welcome to From the Deep End. It is, what, June the 7th, uh, and we are looking for a wonderful Tuesday here on uh, Digital Bible Study as we study the Word of God together with you throughout the day. A full lineup today, man, just um, uh, stuff all going on pretty much all day throughout the day. Uh, we are on here at 8 o'clock. Uh, um, Truth Tuesday, I believe, will be on today, and that will be at 10 o'clock Eastern, and then we will... Uh, have, I believe Tony Brewer and Aaron Dotson will be on at the 11 o'clock hour for the Christianity Today. Um, and then I think Paul Mays is on at uh, 1 o'clock this afternoon. And then we have uh, the Connect meeting. It says it's garbled again. Good night. What is going on? Give me a second. All right, try again. Let's see how we're going to do it today. Um, I, don't, I do have no idea what is causing that. No idea at all what is causing that. It just shouldn't be. Let me know if it's... Um, okay, that sounds like it's better now. That is... That makes no sense. Why does... Why is it not working when I... I, I what if it's the music clips? The, 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 the leading clip is somehow... I don't know. I'll, I, I guess I'll have to figure it out if I can, but that is, it's never, it just started in the last week or so, and I don't think I've changed a thing, so anyway, at least we got it fixed, so as I was saying, got a full lineup today, uh, starting today at 8, we're obviously now here for From the Deep End, uh, Truth Tuesday at 10, uh, Christianity Today with Tony and Aaron at 11, I think Paul Mays at 1, uh, and this night on Connect, we will have um, uh, Todd Creighton back with us, um, Todd from over in uh, Frisco, Texas. I believe that's where he still is. And always a pleasure to have uh, Todd on with us and looking forward to hearing him tonight. And so um, that's our lineup for today. About five, six hours worth of uh, um, Bible study, maybe even a bit more than that. <coughs> oh, yeah. And I, I don't know. I always forget it. And then, of course, we'll have Tony again uh, in the eight o'clock hour uh, for uh, cogitations. So we just have a full lineup of uh, material today. Uh, hope you will avail yourself of the opportunity and uh, uh, just hopefully find some, something that you are encouraged by, something you're challenged by as you study the Word of God uh, with us throughout the day. So anyway, uh, of course, this, though, is from the deep end. And if there are any new viewers or listeners out there today, what we do here on this program is that uh, for the first hour that we are on from 8 to 9 o'clock Eastern, I hand control the program over to you, unless y'all don't take it, and then I go off on my own tangent. But oh, y'all normally come up with something for me to talk about. Uh, but just hand, hand control of the program over to you. Uh, if you have any Bible questions, uh, any particular thoughts, themes, topics, books, whatever, anything, anything, tan, even tangentially, is that a word? Uh, connected to the, um, the biblical text, we will uh, discuss it as to the best of my ability, whatever that is. Um, and of course, as I always say, I always reserve the right to say, I don't know at any point or something along those lines. Uh, I will try to get you as far down that path as I can. The Bible's a big book. It's got a lot of deep topics in it, and I do not pretend to have um, knowledge about every single one of them, but I will do my best to uh, 
uh, at least give you a, a point in the right direction if I can. So if you have any of those uh, Bible thoughts that you would like to discuss this morning, uh, feel free um, to go ahead and put those in, and we will begin to discuss them here in the uh, in the next few minutes. So um, in the 9 o'clock hour, we turn it to a <clears throat> specific study, um, and I have chosen the book of First Peter. Um, it's funny, I asked you all for all those points. I don't think anybody said for all, all those ideas. I don't think anybody said First Peter, so I just went off on my own. <laughs> so... Uh, I haven't forgotten the, the ones that I solicited from you, though. I will work on getting some of those into the uh, into the mix here shortly. Just uh, some of them take a lot more prep work for me than others. And with the move coming up uh, to start the work at Rockledge, uh, I need stuff I am more natively familiar with than some of the suggestions y'all gave me. But um, haven't forgotten them. I'll, I'll get used to. I'll get. I'll get them worked in uh, as I can throughout the. Uh, next several weeks and months. Um, so anyway, uh, that's what we do. So in the nine o'clock hour, we will be uh, just beginning the text First Peter. Did some introductory work on it yesterday. And I think we're pretty well ready to start uh, chapter one here at the top of the hour. So let's turn our attention to um, uh, to the comment section. And I do see Jonathan has a question and Jonathan must know that this Jonathan has a has a sugar stick that he can, he can chew on, lick on whenever. <laughs> Whenever he needs to talk about something, when it relates to the Bible, here it is. Uh, does the Holy Spirit? How does the Holy Spirit work um, in conversion? Um, th that um, that's that's a good question, um, and one that is, I think, perhaps um, not properly understood. Maybe a good way of saying it, or at least it's uh, it's a topic that it's a topic that I don't think people want a simple answer for if that makes any sense. Um, they, they, they want this to be more complex than it, than, than it has to be. Uh, and it's, it's, it's amazing how many Bible topics all seem to flow back to the doctrine of, of depravity or of original sin uh, for those who might come and be coming out of a Catholic background. Um, the moral incapacitation of humanity to respond to the call of the gospel, however, however you construct that, um, you know, for, for, for Protestants, quote unquote, it's usually some form of the doctrine of depravity, um, or for Catholics, they would call essentially the same thing—not exactly the same thing, but essentially the same thing. Original sin, they, they'd have the same same basic thought behind it. Um, but um, um, it, that that doctrine has its its tentacles through the interpretation of the Bible uh, for no, no matter, again, no matter which side of that fence you're on, depravity or original sin, that doctrine, the tentacles of that go out into nearly every Bible account, every Bible story, um, every Bible doctrine, that there's almost nothing that can, can, can avoid the reach of that doctrine. Well, if you've been around me at all, you know um, one of the things that I will, um, aside from the Holy Spirit, talk about without any any encouragement at all, is the doctrines of depravity. Um, the The doctrines of depravity just have no biblical basis whatsoever. I, I'll just say that as clear as I can. There is no basis for the doctrine of biblical depravity. Um, let, let me show you. Let me show you a way I can. You can illustrate that. 
um, go go to any page of the Old Testament that you want to, any page of the Old Testament anywhere, okay? Um, and find me a Bible character, be it Noah, uh, Abraham, Joshua, Moses, who, whoever, pick one. Did that individual have access to the Holy Spirit in the way that, to, to get to Jonathan's question. Jonathan's question is not about conversion in the Old Testament. Jonathan's question is right now. How does the Holy Spirit work in conversion now? Right? Well, however he does it, every doctrine of depravity, whether that is a partial depravity or a total depravity, every single one of them, the Holy Spirit is necessary in that work. All right? Um, let me get back to the Old Testament here in just a second. But I want to take you to a passage that is one that um, I probably have referenced this story before. Um, I'm going to reference it here again. Um, Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3 and verse number 4, let's start there. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not by works of righteousness, uh, uh, not by works done by us in righteousness, according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. All right? I was talking to a professor. Um, actually, he was just about to become a professor. He is currently, I believe, I believe he's still at the same school that he, he was shortly after we had this conversation. I was talking to a professor in one of our one of one of the universities, Christian universities, um, associated with Churches of Christ, and we were talking about this topic, Jonathan. We were talking about the work of the Holy Spirit, work, and 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 we didn't phrase it this way as we were having the conversation, but this is the topic we were talking about: the work of the Holy Spirit in conversion. Um, and I asked him, "What does this mean?" And he said that we are regenerated in in, in baptism. Okay, that's fine. And there is a renewal of the spirit in my renewal of, of that same, of our spirit, rather, by the Holy Spirit in baptism. So to which then I followed up something along the lines of, does that mean that the fact that our spirit needs to be renewed, does that mean our spirit is unrenewed, expired, I guess would be the opposite of renewed before baptism he said yes to a degree and now his his thought was he didn't believe in hereditary depravity he did believe though in uh, um, uh, practical depravity that the spirit because of sin loses the ability fully to comply with the law of God and then and and that in order to um respond to the gospel, and then to live of the gospel, there needs to be an assistance, a direct assistance of the Holy Spirit in order to, to, uh, to be saved. To which I said, okay, great. And I, at some point in that discussion, I forget the, 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 the bullet point order of this discussion, but at some point we had established that this renewal, this washing of regeneration and this renewal of the Holy Spirit takes place at the point of baptism. Okay, great. 
So it is in baptism that we are regenerated and we are renewed. It is the washing of regeneration. Okay, once again, great. Not agree. I'm not agreeing with you because I don't think that's what that phrase means. But all right, let, let's let's run with that for a second. My next question was, and I asked it about David. After having established that this renewal of the Holy Spirit only occurs in the conversion of one who is becoming a Christian. All right. The obvious question to me to that is, what about David? So I asked him, was David saved? Because David, prior to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2, prior to what I'm told is the indwelling of the Spirit that comes upon all Christians, starting in Acts 2.38. John 20, Jesus says very clearly, for the Holy Spirit has not yet been glorified, or has not yet been given, or John says the Holy Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. The Holy Spirit is not given until Jesus is glorified. And that's what Acts 2 says. Having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has now put, he has poured out this which you now see and hear. Uh, therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, not until he is exalted, not until he had went when he had by himself purged our sins, Hebrews chapter 1. Before Acts 2, the Holy Spirit had not been given in the in in whatever in whatever sense everyone who believes and is baptized will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Whatever you mean by that phrase, it had never occurred before Acts 2. That's what the text says. Said, had sin occurred before Acts 2? Sin had occurred before Acts 2. Sin occurred back in the garden. Now, other than the fact that Adam's sin was the first sin, Adam and Eve's sins were the first ones, and that had never happened before. It's still just sin. Cain and Abel, particularly Abel, or Cain rather, sins. And then every person after that sins. Right? Were there people saved in the Old Testament? Have you read Hebrews 11? These all died in faith, seeing we are encompassed by so, by, by so great a cloud of witnesses. Every doctrine about how the Holy Spirit works in conversion must account for Old Testament salvation. It's that simple. And if you believe that there is a necessary impartation, or imputation maybe the better word, but at least an impartation, an imparting, of a divine <coughs> blessing directly from the spirit onto the human spirit in order to cause that person to be saved or to uh, uh, enable that person to continue their salvation. If that is integral and necessary to your doctrine of conversion and sanctification, you have to explain the Old Testament. So I asked him, what about David? Was he saved? And this man's response to me, I'll remember it till the day I die. This man's response to me was, no, not in the way that we are. Hmm. Looking back, I wish I hadn't asked it about David. I wish I'd asked it about Abraham. But the same would have applied to Abraham. But... You see, the problem with Abraham is if I had thought that through better, I would have asked it about Abraham. 
because when he said, because he, he would have to say the same thing about Abraham. Abraham had no more access to this. Abraham had no more access to the Acts 2.38 blessing of the Spirit. He had no more access to the, the Titus 3 blessing of the Spirit than David did. Nobody, zero people, zero people before Acts 2 have access to that blessing. Whatever this verse is describing, zero people have it before Acts 2. Zero. That's the total number of people in all of human history that have that blessing before Acts 2. It's zero. Not one, not two, it's zero. Did I say that yet? It's that ab absolute zero, nil, zilch, zip. But they're all listed in Hebrews 11. Abraham is the father of all who believe. We are the seed of Abraham, faith of Abraham. He didn't have the spirit. Whatever your doctrine is about the work of the Holy Spirit in conversion, it must explain, it must explain the conversion and salvation of all the Old Testament saints before the Holy Spirit is given. That's my litmus test. If I hear you say something about Acts 2 or Romans 8 and you make that a necessary blessing of the directly from the Holy Spirit as a result of the preaching of the gospel, if you tie some function of the Holy Spirit to salvation under the gospel and the gospel alone, and nearly every contemporary doctrine, be it from a, 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 a Protestant background or Catholic background, Nearly, and, and, and that's just the divide I'm using right now, that there's more nuance and more ways you could divide that up. But for the sake of this discussion, I'm just breaking it, into, breaking it into two camps. Nearly every doctrine in those two camps, that is mainstream and so on, fails that test. People were saved in the Old Testament. And I'm not talking here, by the way, I'm not talking here about the efficacy of the animal sacrifices. That's not the point. Don't, don't get confused on the efficacy of the animal sacrifices. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the response of the human spirit to the call of God to repent, to the call of God to be faithful. Does the human spirit need a direct imputation of some, some divine power, some divine blessing to respond to the gospel? The answer to that is no. If it is, if some kind of depravity, whether that be through uh, a repeated uh, um, a sin that causes the, the as to use the language of what Ephesians and Colossians have similar language there, the, the foolish heart being darkened, that, that, that concept, if that is so thick, if that is so, it's not, you know, to use the word people have been using a lot these days about inflation, if that's permanent, not transitory, okay? If that if that's your doctrine, that sin causes a permanent disfiguration, expiration of the capability of the human spirit, so that the only path back is some degree, whole or in part, doesn't matter. Degree here does not matter. If if I need ten percent of if 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 my response to the gospel is ninety percent me and ten percent a direct infusion of the Holy Spirit, I still come up ninety percent or ten percent short if I'm on my own. 
And 10% short of salvation is, is lost. You can't have it both ways here. You can't say, yes, David was saved, but not like us. You can't have that. 1% short of being saved is lost. There's a line in this in the in, in I say in the sand, but that line doesn't change. There, there's a line in the concrete, there's a line in the in the stone. Kingdom of light, kingdom of darkness. You're either in Israel or you're out of Israel. There's a there's no fudging of this line. And if I need one percent of the spirit's help, and, and you're not telling me it the spirit makes it easier. Makes my response easier. Makes my no. You're telling me it's necessary. You lose me in the Old Testament every time. Your doctrine falls apart in the Old Testament every single time. So let me start there in answering your question, Jonathan. What does the Holy? What? Do, how does the Holy Spirit work in conversion? I will answer it this way to start. He works in conversion in the Old Testament and in the New Testament in exactly the same manner. That's where I'll, that's where I'll start it. Salvation from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. As we have been studying or had been studying, have studied here on Run the Deep End in our look at our 110 lessons or so on the book of Romans. Salvation in the Bible, not just Old New Testament, but salvation in the Bible is always by faith. It is the obedience of faith. Every single page of your Bible, that is the metric of salvation. Whatever change, whatever alteration there is in the Spirit's work, and yes, there is a change in the Spirit's work starting in Acts 2. If you want to know what it is, just ask a question, because that's what we do. We answer questions in the first hour. But there is a change in the Spirit's work in Acts 2. The prophecy of Joel 2, which is used as the basis of the events, of, of, of the basis of the explanation of the events in Acts 2. That, um, 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 that event, that prophecy, the prophesying of the events of Acts 2, is a marked change in the Spirit's work from the Old Testament to the New Testament. No doubt about it. Absolutely no doubt about it. But it's not a change in the way that God saves people. The very fact that the book of Romans, Paul jumps back to Romans through the life of Abraham and says, Here's, here, here is the black man who is blessed. The man who is saved by faith apart from his works. The man unto, to whom the Lord will not impute iniquity. That man is Abraham. The textual support of the salvation of Abraham and the metric that God applied to him is found in Psalm 32. Last time I checked, Psalm 32 is in the Old Testament. That metric has never changed, never will change. Salvation by faith. So if you have a doctrine, Say it one more time. If you have a doctrine which needs some kind of alteration of the Spirit's work starting in Acts 2 to effect salvation under the gospel, you leave behind Old Testament saints. And I, I will reject that doctrine just out of hand, out of hand. There, there's no reason to, to pursue that doctrine if you make a if you change the path 
of <clears throat> the Old Testament versus New Testament salvation. So then, what does the Holy Spirit do in conversion? Short answer, he brings the word. Somebody said, I think it was Jim, as that quotation or the references, Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing. It's really not that complicated, people. It's really not that complicated. Have you ever uh, bought a product because you saw advertising? I have. You know, I always hate myself when I fall subject to advertising and it works. I recognize it's working. I just don't like that it's working. But yeah, I, I've bought products in my life because of advertising. What is that? Well, it's somebody putting forth a case. Here's why you need to buy our product and not somebody else's. Our product is better. And however, however else it works, you believe that that line is true. That product is better or that product has more value. That's how it works. Somebody makes before you a persuasive case and you believe it or you don't believe it. If you don't believe it, you don't buy the product. If you do believe it, you do buy the product. So when you have the money or other products I'd like to buy based on advertising, I don't have the money for. <laughs> That's how it works. We persuade and convince each other of things all the time. An election comes around. You're going to vote for one person or the other. Why do you do it? Because one person convinces you their values, their principles, their policies are in line with yours. Or they convince you to change yours, to match theirs. It's persuasion. Another word for persuasion is belief. I believe, I have faith, I have trust based on what I've seen, based on what I've heard, that choice A is better than choice B. Somehow, that process is powerful enough to persuade us on nearly everything that we do. Nearly everything that we do. That process is powerful enough to persuade us. Now, there are some people who don't think that or don't think their ideas and their products are good enough. And so they turn to social media companies or other things to make the playing field not level. They try to shout down other voices. They try to make sure other voices aren't heard and so on. God doesn't do that because God's case is compelling. The Holy Spirit inspired the word of God, put it into the mouths of prophets, and then they said it verbally. And God made his case. Isaiah 1. Love that phrase in Isaiah 1. Come now, let us reason together. God will say several times in the Old Testament, things along the lines of, I call heaven and earth against, the, against you for witness today. He appeals to all the, the, the celestial bodies, the sun, the moon, all that, and said, all of those, pay attention to what's happening right here. I am making my case, and I am, I am laying out my, my complaint against Israel, and all of my creation is here to bear witness to the truth, truthfulness of the case, case, excuse me, that I've put out before you today. Where did those words come from? Those words came by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That's it. There's nothing else there. 
Okay, this is, you know, sometimes people say, well, we just can't understand all these things. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. This one we can. I understand it completely, and so should you. God speaks, we listen. God's words are true. They, because they are true, because they are eternally true, because they are infinitely true. There's no, <laughs> there's no shade of, of doubt in them. There's no, there's no possibility of error in them. They are the unadulterated, pure truth, and truth in and of itself is powerful. You shall know the truth. The truth will set you free. That's all you need. The truth. The unadulterated, clear, pristine truth. You will look into that truth. Those in darkness hate the light. It is not hard. You will look into that truth and you will make a choice. Is that what I want or not what I want? It is the Holy Spirit who puts that truth in front of you. And you make a choice. There's nothing more there. This is not hard. It's exactly the same experience and the same process we have in every area of our lives. You are confronted with choices. You're driving down the road, the road map, or your GPS, or the road signs, whatever. says, yes, turn left. No, don't turn right. Okay? If the signs are right, if the GPS map is right, you've got one choice. If you want to get to your destination, you turn left. You have the truth in front of you. If you turn right, you don't make it to your destination. Why is this hard? There is reality. There is truth. God reveals that reality. He reveals that truth to us. We either accept it or we don't. Anything more than that is mysticism. Anything more than that is beyond the, 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 the text of Scripture. So that's, why, that's how I'd answer the question, Jonathan. The Holy Spirit brings to us the truth. He is the spirit of truth, as was in the Old Testament, continues to be into the New Testament. So that, that's where I'd go with the answer, okay? Uh, Cora asks, please explain First uh, Peter 3.19. I think we may have talked about this um, um, in a show a while ago, but it has been a while ago, so I'll be glad to go back and look at the passage again. And it would be really good if I actually had the Bible program open when I'm trying to type in First Peter. Um, Turn our attention back over there to First Peter chapter three. Um, um, get the right screen share going here, so you all can see the text more clearly. Um, we'll start in verse eighteen because that's uh, um, uh, more fully, completely the context. Uh, Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, uh, being put to death in the flesh. <clears throat> excuse me, made alive in the spirit, in which. Uh, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited um, uh, in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through or saved by water. Uh, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not the removal of a dirt from the body, but as an appeal for good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected unto him. Okay. Uh, the, the, obviously, the question that normally comes up is, uh, how did Jesus and when did Jesus and so on? 
go to um, uh, proclaim um, to those spirits which are in prison. Okay. Um, you know, I, I, <laughs> there's a quote in Star Trek. It probably comes from other sources, but uh, I've used it on this program before from, but uh, Spock says it to Kirk at one point. Uh, I think he says it to Kirk. I'd have to remember the scene now. But uh, he says, uh, when you remove the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the answer. And that's a pretty good adage. Maybe not universally true, but that's a pretty good adage. Um, what is impossible from this verse? What doctrines would contradict clear Bible teachings in other places? Okay. Hebrews 9 and verse 27 says, it's appointed unto man once to die. After this, the judgment. Okay, there, there's no there's no intermediate intermediary period. There's no purgatory. <clears throat> there's no limbo. There's death, and after death, the judgment. Is that supported anywhere else in Scripture? Yeah, Luke 16. Count of rich man and Lazarus. Send Lazarus back. Abraham says, can't do it. Let him come, or, or uh, first of all, let him come, you know, Dip his finger in the water and come see me. No, nope, can't do that. There's a great goal fixed. Can't go one way or the other. You're in one. You're you're on your side, rich man. Lazarus is on his side. He has rest. You have torment. <clears throat> that's the way it is. All right. So that's the doctrine. I know that doctrine to be true. You know, another way of saying this is you explain the hard passages by the simple passages. You take simple, clear, clear Bible truths. <clears throat> Excuse me. And what do you have? You have a doctrine which says, when you die, you are sent to either paradise, Jesus calls it at the crucifixion, Abraham's bosom, as it's called, and Abraham's side, as it's called in Luke 16, whatever you want to call it, you're sent there. Or you're sent to torment, to use the language of Luke 16. Those are, those are your options. No third option, unless you want to make the case that Tartarus is, is, a, is a third component of, of uh, the Hadean realm, which is beyond the scope of this discussion. And even then, uh, those who try to make Tartarus a third uh, a third component of the Hadean realm have to acknowledge that 2 Peter 2 only says the devil and his angels, are uh, that, that that place is reserved for them. So for you and for you and I, for you and me, it's not an option. So we, we have two options, Abraham's side or torment. That's all the Bible has. And we know that once you're in those compartments, the great gulf is fixed, and you can't go from one to the other. All you are waiting for is the judgment. That's all you're waiting for. Right? So, which component, which compartment did, did Jesus go to upon his death? Well, he says to the thief, This day you will uh, uh, abide with me in paradise. I know where he went. He didn't go to hell. Uh, Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 2, uh, really. Yeah, Acts chapter 2. Uh, Old King James, uh, will you, by the, uh, the quotation is, you will not leave my soul in hell. Um, it's it's not a wrong translation because of the way the, the word hell was used back when um, uh, the King James was translated. But it, it, is a, it, it is currently now an unclear translation because that word hell has lost its original meaning and only means the place of eternal torment to, to an English speaker now. Um, in, in the times of the translation of the King James, it just meant a covered thing. 
uh, something that was covered over with the soil or something of that nature. So you will not leave my, my soul in the unseen or the covered place, which is what the word Hades means. Um, and so Jesus is not saying, I'm going to hell. I'm going to the Hadean realm, Acts chapter 2. The component of the Hadean realm that I'm going to, he referred to on the cross as paradise. Okay? Jesus went to paradise. He went to Abraham's side. Did he then preach to those souls which were not in the blessing of Abraham's side, but those souls who were in the prison that the rich man was teaching about? Well, if Abraham's and, and uh, uh, the rich man's talking back and forth to each other suggest that that is a common occurrence, that, that is a normal occurrence, it is entirely possible that Jesus could have spoken to the souls that were in prison. He is divine, after all. I suppose he can talk to anybody he wants to. Um, but that's not the sense of this verse. The sense of this verse is a path of salvation. Right? This passage, this whole section is, the righteous suffered for the unrighteous, put to death in the flesh but alive in the spirit, and uh, was providing a way of salvation in the days of Noah, through through uh, through the ark and the, and the and the transportation of him from the world that was corrupted to the world that was uh, uh, renewed by uh, uh, the transportation of water uh, and and salvation in that manner. So if the thought here is we are offering these people a path of salvation, once again, whatever is impossible you eliminate. What is impossible? It is impossible. Abraham says it explicitly. Once you are in torment, you cannot pass from torment to paradise. There is a great gulf fixed. Fixed. That never changes. So it is that what is impossible is that Jesus went. First of all, he didn't go to torment. He never went to the souls that were in prison. All right. So that's impossible. I know that from other texts. So what's left? What possible way could this passage be fulfilled? Well, the best answer I have for it is this. Jesus did not go in person to those spirits, but Jesus went by the spirit, in which, or I think the King James has, by, let's see what the footnote here is on the ESV. Um, the, the 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 ESV says the spirit in whom he went and proclaimed. I think the old King James has by which or by whom uh, he went and proclaimed. It is said that he went and proclaimed the path of salvation to those spirits. Now note, it never says he went to those spirits and proclaimed to the spirits while they were in prison. It says he proclaimed to spirits that currently are in prison, to the spirits in prison. Look at what he says here. Because formerly they did not obey. When is it that you need the path of salvation uh, 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 proclaimed to you? You need the path of salvation proclaimed to you. During that period of time, you're not obeying. You need the opportunity to repent. So is there a path by which the Holy Spirit, under the direction of Jesus, could have proclaimed a path of salvation to these souls before they reached torment and there was no longer hope? Well, there was. If you'll turn over to the book of 2 Peter, is it 2 Peter? Um, whoo, 
I want to say it's 2 5. For if God, 2 4, it'll start. For if God did not spare the angels who, when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to change of gloomy darkness, to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, ESV, a herald of righteousness, or a preacher of righteousness, I think the King James has. With, he says, seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Where do you suppose he got his message from? God appeared to Noah and said, I want you to build me an ark. Here are the dimensions of it. We have the revelation of God being given to a man. And that revelation telling man of the impending judgment. We call that inspiration, revelation, and inspiration, rather. The being of the Godhead responsible for revealing the truth to man and inspiring man to speak the word of God, to preach the word of God, would be the Spirit. Would be the Spirit. So the answer to my to, to the the best answer I have to this question, Cora, uh, or this request to explain the verse is this: that Christ suffered once for sins, righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. That's the that's the aim. That's the goal. Okay, He was put to death in the flesh. Obviously, He was. Uh, he was made alive in the spirit. Once again, obviously, He was. Uh, no man takes my life from me. If I lay it down, I will take it up again in which, or by which, or by whom, he, Jesus, went to and proclaimed to the spirits, through the spirit, the mouthpiece being Noah. He proclaimed to those, they are now spirits in prison, but when the, the message was proclaimed to them, they were people on earth. Because the whole world was evil. They weren't obeying God. When, and here's your only statement of time in the whole thing, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. What did it wait for? Well, perhaps the proclamation that they needed to obey? Maybe. Waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which that few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water, and baptism corresponds to that. So that, that's how I would handle the passage. A pattern is being laid forth here. Time of proclamation, time of sin, time of disobedience. Jesus providing a path for redemption, for salvation, waits, God's long-suffering waits uh, while uh, the, the proclamation of that path of salvation is, is, is put forth, and men are given a chance to obey or not obey. And the answer, the, the path to avoiding the, the judgment that the souls that are now in prison because they failed to obey, the path to avoiding that impending judgment, which you'll find in 2 Peter 2 and 3, the path to avoiding that impending judgment is to have a good conscience before God, and, and baptism is the manner in which that appeal to God for a good conscience is made. So, Cora, that, that's where I would um, <clears throat> that's where I would go with that particular that particular verse. Um hopefully that is that is helpful. Let's see what we got here. Um uh, okay, um, Sue, going back to the Holy Spirit conversation a few minutes ago. After conversion, what was the gift of the Holy Spirit that people were to receive? 
And the promise was to them uh, and their children, those that were far off. Well, um, Sue, let's, um, I don't know if I have time to answer this fully today. Um, I do have in the book that I wrote about the Holy Spirit, I do have, actually, no, it's not in the book I wrote about the Holy Spirit. I deal with this topic directly. I think it is in, um, it's, it's in a Kindle essay that I have released on the book of Acts. Uh, that is not yet in a printed volume. You'd have to get that off of Kindle, um, off of Amazon if you have a Kindle. That, that would be the path to getting that. Um, I think it's available for 99 cents, which is at the lowest they'll let you charge for one of those. Uh, maybe $1.99, but it, it's not very expensive. Um, but we go through uh, a parallel between Joel 2 and Acts 2, and it's very it's a very important parallel to get. Uh, I think what trips people up here, um, I'm going to try to be careful about where, where I go with this and with the time that we have left. But I really think the part that trips people up is this part right here um, of verse 39. For the promises unto you, your children, and all that are afar off. So what that makes people think is the, the gift of the Holy Spirit in verse 30, 38 must be a permanent and ever everlasting gift, right? Because it's to you. And the way we read that is this. We read that you, Christians, your children, so the next generation of Christians, and all that are far off, continuing generations of Christians. That's how we read that. Okay? So we have one generation, two generations, and then subsequent generations on down through the stream of time, and that is one of the arguments people use to say that the gift of the Holy Spirit cannot be tied to the first century prophetic, miraculous, whatever you want to call it, work of the Holy Spirit. Um, I don't have time to answer the fullness of the question, but let me at least deal with that part of it. Because if you get this part, I think the rest of it kind of falls in place. This is not a statement of a all through all through human history, all throughout time, application of the promise. Okay. The promise we have to we have to understand first. The promise starts in in um, Luke twenty four. You will receive the promise of the Father. You go to Jerusalem and you will wait and you will receive the promise of the Father. That's what Luke twenty four says. Acts chapter one repeats the same language. You want to know what the promise is? It's Acts two thirty three. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. Well, there's your promise. The promise of the Father he gave to Jesus. Peter calls it the promise from the Father, the promise of the Holy Spirit. It's not a different promise. It's the same promise. Okay? What was that promise? What was the fulfillment of that promise? Having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he gave the promise of the Holy Spirit to the people that were listening to the sermon. He has shed forth this which you now see and hear. What were they seeing and hearing? They were speaking in tongues. That's what the crowd was seeing and hearing. And then Peter says, you will receive this same gift, this same outpouring of the Holy Spirit. You will receive it for the promises to you. Jesus received the promise, and now the promise is to you. Where is the promise? Okay, this is a pre-existing promise. Peter, and it's interesting, Peter never explains the promise. He doesn't have to because his audience knew what the promise was. 
But in fact, he did explain the promise. He explained the promise when he first stood up. The first words out of his mouth were, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Having received of the Father the promise that the Father made in Joel 2.28, having received of the Father the promise that the Holy Spirit would come, that the Holy Spirit would be here, the Holy Spirit would be involved in the ministry of the Messiah, having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, Jesus, has poured out what you're seeing and hearing. What were they seeing and hearing? Speaking in tongues. Prophecies about the coming things. How about prophecy, visions, and dreams? Would that would that would 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 prophecies, visions, and dreams cover the speaking in tongues and the and the tongues like as a fire and all of that in Acts chapter two? Would that would that cover that? Yeah, it kind of would. See, we didn't introduce a new thought here. So the only problem we have here is that the Acts two says, "You, your children, and all that are far off." And so we think us, all Christians, our children, second generation of Christians. And as many subsequent generations as God as God needs to get us to that point. Okay, there's our problem. That's not what that means. I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. The promise is to you. And the promise is to your children. Look what's actually in Joel 2. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. That would include you. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. The promise is to you and to your children. There it is. There it is. You and your children. What about all those that are far off? Doesn't that mean down through the stream of time? May mean that to you. What did it mean to a Jewish audience? standing in Jerusalem, devout men, Jews out of every nation under heaven. Did they already have an established meaning for the phrase far off? And is that concept of far off included within the scope of the prophecy, which is the basis of the promise of Acts 2.39? Those are the two questions you have to answer. Did the Jews have an established meaning for the term far off? Yes, they did. Turn with me over to Ephesians chapter 2. Start with me in verse 11. Remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, clearly we know who Paul is talking to, Gentiles, physical, by birth, Gentiles, ethnic Gentiles. You were called uncircumcision by that which is called by is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands. So the Jews, with a fleshly circumcision, looked to the Gentiles and said, You are uncircumcised. That at that time you were without Christ. Aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, and having no hope and without God in the world. Prior to the coming of the gospel, you had no hope. You had did not have access to the covenants of promise. They belonged to the Jews. You had no hope. You were without God. You were without Christ. You had no access to the Godhead whatsoever. You were lost. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once 
far off, have been brought nigh or near by the blood of Christ. To the Jews, far off did not mean through the stream of time. To the Jews, something that was far off was excluded or could be difficult. Okay, the word of God is nigh unto you. It's not up into the heavens where you can't reach it. It's not far off. The word of God is near you. Okay, that's that passage, that, that reference is slipping my brain for the moment. It's, I believe it's in one of the Psalms. If somebody can find that for me, that'd be great. I can't, I can't pull it up. I was trying to pull it out of a hat here, but I don't have it. But that language is there. The, the, the word of God is near you, not far off, not remote, not removed from you. They go back in the Old Testament, some, there are a few references like this. I don't have these either off the top of my head. But the Gentiles who were part of the nations, a part of the islands, a part of the isles, their lands were far off. They were excluded. They were out of fellowship. It was hard. It was difficult to get to them. Something that is near is accomplishable. It's easy. You can do it. Something that far off is far off is not. That's what they meant by it. When God is near to you, you have communion and fellowship and harmony with him. When God is far off from you, you, you are excluded from him. That's what it means. Doesn't mean stream of time. It means whether you are in communion and harmony, and so therefore access is easy or maybe the task is easy. Far off, hard, impossible, not included. The Gentiles were far off. Why were they far off? because they were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, because they were not attached to the covenants of promise, because they had no hope and they did not have God. They, from a Jewish perspective, were far off. The Jews stood close to God. The Gentiles were far off. That's what the phrase means. Okay, chase that phrase down in your Old Testament. Uh, it's, it's not hard to do, but it, it's there all over the place. That's the concept. So we go back here to... Acts 2, the promise is for you and your children. That's exactly who Joel 2 has. Pour out my spirit and your sons and your daughters will prophesy. So it's to you and to your children. We have both generations. And to all who are far off. Is there any concept of the far off people being included in the promise of Joel 2? Sure there is. I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. That would be inclusive of the Gentiles. Promises to you, to your children, and all that are far off. Okay? Now let's look at this then. I will show, and let me show this, in the last days, I will pour out my spirit to all that are far off, include you know to, to, to all flesh, which would include all the Jews and obviously the, all, the, all the Gentiles, far off Gentiles. It would include your sons and your daughters. They're going to prophesy. You, your children, all that are far off. Notice this. In those days, the promise of the Holy Spirit is that people would have prophecy, they would have visions, and they would have dreams. I would challenge you to read through at Joel 2 the totality of the text here, and find me something other. This is the basis of the promise of the Father, the promise of the Holy Spirit. Peter says, this is what Joel was talking. Acts 2 is the fulfillment of Joel 2. This is that 
which was spoken by Joel. I have no doubt about that. Joel is the Acts 2 is the fulfillment of Joel 2. Acts 2 says, not that I will pour out my spirit upon the apostles. Nope. I will pour out my spirit upon everybody, your sons and your daughters, your old men, your young men, even your servants, male and female. Everybody will have access to the promise of the Holy Spirit. The promise is unto you. There is one promise about the Holy Spirit. Oh, it's nine o'clock. I need to hurry. Just as a, a matter of, of, of um, interest, after this time, after Acts chapter 2, do you want to know how many other Old Testament passages are appealed to to describe the work of the Holy Spirit? From Acts 2, 20, 21, 22, when this quotation ends, do you know how many other how many other times in any of the epistles, any in the book of Revelation, anywhere in the New Testament, another Old Testament passage is appealed to to prove or to explain the work of the Holy Spirit? Zero. Romans 8 never appeals to the Old Testament to explain the Spirit. Ephesians 4, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14, never appeal to the Old Testament to explain the work of the Holy Spirit. The only Old Testament passage from Acts 2 forward ever used to explain what's going on about the Holy Spirit is Joel 2. You know why? Because Joel 2 explains it all. Joel 2 is the totality of God's promise about the Spirit. You want to know what the gift of the Spirit is? It's the fulfillment. It's the blessing that comes from the Spirit, the promise of the Spirit. God promised in the time of the gospel, I will give my Spirit to everybody, all flesh. And when I do, you'll have visions and dreams and prophecy. That is the totality of what God ever said about the work of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. That's it. And I know that. Because when challenged about the work of the Spirit in Galatians 3, Paul doesn't appeal to anything but the promised Spirit. You will receive the promised Spirit by faith. Where was the Spirit promised? You will receive the um, 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 uh, the, the, the seal of the Spirit. The word promises over there is in Ephesians 1, 2. Um, uh, I don't have it right off the top of my head here. All right. That's it. That's all you've got. Now, here's the critical thing. So to get to your question. Here's the critical thing. The last days, I will pour out my spirit. In those days, I will pour out my spirit. Joel's quotation, actually in Joel, says, and it will come to pass afterward. Peter translates that, the last days. So from Joel's perspective, after my period of time, in the latter days, in the last days, that's going to happen. I will continue to do that in those days, verse 18. So in those same days, I will show wonders in heaven above and signs on earth below, blood, fire, and vapors of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon in blood. Before the great and terrible day, the, 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 before the day of the Lord comes, great, great and magnificent. Does that language sound familiar? That language ought to remind you of Matthew chapter 24, verse 30 and following, immediately after the tribulation of those days. Right? There's a bookend here. The start of Joel's prophecy says afterward, to use the Old Testament rendering of it, or in the last days. In those days, in the last days, I will pour out my spirit. And in those same last days, judgment's coming. 
that judgment and those days in which the spirit is out or is outpour. Because not, notice the connection here in verse 19, just the word and. And in those days, I will pour out my spirit and I will show wonders in heaven. What days? The last days. When do the last days end? The last days end before the day of the Lord comes, great and magnificent. Think Matthew 24. And then notice this. And it shall come to pass. When? To keep it consistent, this verse should say, and it shall come to pass all in those days. Doesn't say that. Outside of the before, so we have up here, we have an afterward statement, and we have down here a before statement in verse 20. And then we have another statement of time. It shall come to pass. When? Does not say in the last days. It simply says, it will come to pass. When? How about forever? Since this is outside of the bookends of the afterward and before statement from verse 17 down to verse 20, why is this? Let me ask it this way. Why would you not put this verse before? Why would you not read it this way? Verse 19 or 18. In those days, I will pour out my spirit. That's one thing I'll do. In those days, I will show wonders in heavens above. That's the second thing I do. And in those days, everyone that calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. See how that construct would be different? If you took verse 21 and you put it between the word blood and the word before there in verse 20, how would that change the meaning of the phrase? To ask it the other direction around, why is verse 21 verse 21 and not verse 20? The reason's simple. It's because the promise of the Spirit happens in the last days and before the great and terrible day of the Lord. The promise that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved is eternal. And so it's not put into that timestamp of before and afterward. Or afterward and before, rather. It's the universal part of Joel 2. So you answer that to me then, Sue. The question of what is the gift of the Spirit is very easy. It's prophecy, it's visions, and it's dreams. Because the gift of the Spirit is simply the fulfillment of the promise of the Spirit. Okay, that's what I would do with it. Hopefully, uh, that helps. And there's a lot more. There are a lot more questions in there about that. And I am already six minutes over time, so I'm going to have to go ahead and stop it. Um, I will. Um, I'll read through some of these uh, and see if I can't maybe formulate some things I want to say tomorrow. Because y'all, y'all are right, in my, right in my wheelhouse right now. I could talk about this. You think I can take a long time talking about the Book of Romans? Have mercy. You should see how long I can talk about the Holy Spirit. <laughs> so I'll see. I'll see if I can't come up with because uh, uh, I see a couple of the comments I want to get to, but I simply do not have the the, the time to address it uh, since we're already over time. So I'll read through those uh, after we get off the program this morning, and maybe we'll start tomorrow with me finishing up this thought a little bit because I, I I did just really stop right in the middle of a thought. So uh, again, thank you all for those questions. Thank you all for participating. 
Uh, and thank you for picking my favorite topic because that makes my life so much easier when y'all do that. Uh, but uh, we're going to take a break now and we will come back here in about three, four, five minutes, however long that takes me each day. And we will pick up uh, in just a little bit here, excuse me, as we um, study First Peter chapter one together. So sit tight and I'll be right back shortly. All right, everybody, let's check the audio here real quick. Um, give me a, give me a thumbs up or thumbs down, because the last couple of days when I've come back from the break, my audio has been garbled. So I'll have to wait here a few seconds to see if uh, uh, y'all are uh, satisfied with the audio quality. And uh, it seems to only be doing it on StreamYard, I think. Nope. All right, let me back out. I'll be right back. Okay, I'm back. Give me another, uh, give me another thumbs up or thumbs down. Hopefully that will have fixed it. Um, it's obviously something. Uh, it's a. Uh, wonder if it's browser based. That's also a possibility. Maybe Chrome is not happy with me when I, because I'm, I'm running the uh, input that way. So, 
Give me uh all right. Thank you. Thank you, Travis. Appreciate the input on that. Let's go ahead and get started then. Um, and that's just something I'm going to, I've got a, I'll try a different, uh, I'm going to actually use a different platform tomorrow. See if I can't get that, uh, situation resolved. At least that will let me know if it's a stream yard problem or a or hardware problem. I've got another way I can connect. So I will probably do that, um, in the morning and, uh, we'll see now. We'll see if it, see if it does it again tomorrow. Excuse me. Having said that, let's turn our attention, um, back Oh, snake. Every time I jump out of the room, I have to redo my screen share. That, uh, that's what I'm, that's why it's not popping up on the screen. Um, there we go. Um, I didn't mention it in the, in the opening, but I see Marlon just popped in the room. Uh, I did post, uh, on, um, Facebook, the, um, link or the, uh, the advertisement for the, uh, Spanish language gospel meeting we're doing with, uh, um, um, brother Marlon's under his direction. I think other men are also participating in the, um, uh, uh, sessions and that's June 13th through 17th for a couple of hours a night. Um, and we're going to be helping him host that. And we're going to do that on digital Bible study, I think, as well as some of uh, his social media platforms as well. So we are looking forward to uh, working with get him on that. Uh, and then also starting, Marlon, I hadn't talked to you yet this week, but hopefully starting this Friday, uh, we're going to be starting a, a weekly program, uh, a Spanish language weekly program on Friday afternoon. So uh, uh, we'll say more about that uh, maybe tonight as part of Connect. But if you look on, if you're on a lo locals page, which again, you are not over there on our on our locals page. Tony would be upset for me for not mentioning that this morning. I'm supposed to be mentioning that. Um, we have a, a locals platform as well, uh, digitalbiblestudy.locals.com. Uh, there there is a way you can subscribe to us over there. You can it's a you can name your own price, but it's as little as two dollars a month. Um, but we're, we're not really using that as a revenue generation type device. Uh, if you want to stay subscribed over the website, that's fine. Um, but there are some features that you do get uh, if you sign up at two bucks a month. And the reason it's two dollars a month is because they wouldn't let us do one dollar a month. They, they, that's the lowest we could provide it. Uh, it's it's a it, the way it works is it allows us to talk to you directly and you back to us directly if you are one of those two dollars a month supporters. Um, and it's just a, it's it's still public so we can still share things. But it's also protected in the sense that we can talk to each other without any you know, like Internet trolls. And we have a lot more moderation control over it than we do on other platforms. And so we're starting to use that a lot more uh, to try and give, you know, uh, daily updates about things that are going on. So you can see all of that um, for free over on Locals. So if you haven't followed us on Locals, uh, you do have to create a Locals account to be able to do it, just like when you sign up for Facebook or whatever, you do have to do that. Uh, but it's free to use and free to see what's going on over there. Uh, we do occasionally post some things that are just for our supporters on Locals. That's just to give them a little thanks. It's not really to exclude people from other things. So if you're not over there yet, I, I'd go over there. But I was saying that, say this, the the advertisement for um, th this upcoming meeting, Spanish language meeting, you'll find it in our Facebook timeline. And you can also find it uh, over on our uh, uh, locals page. It's a little easier perhaps to find on the locals page because on our Facebook timeline, you have all of our daily broadcast and those thumbnails keep popping up throughout the day and you can lose track of a post uh, pretty quickly. So uh, let me encourage you to, if you have, if you're not following us on locals, uh, jump over there and do that again, uh, free to sign up and just be a member over there. Uh, so anyway, um, let me, um, let me turn our attention now in the time that remains, uh, but just good to see this brother Marlon. And we do need to talk later in the week as, as we get a, uh, as we move forward. So um, let's turn our attention to first Peter. We did the introduction of course um, yesterday uh, and Biggest thing I want you to remember is the uh, audience, 
I think is largely Jewish. Uh, the date is important. We are we are on the precipice of the coming uh, tribulation, which I believe to be the great tribulation, uh, prophesied by Jesus there in the first century, uh, and we are also uh, uh, dealing with a group of people that need to un- need to understand that their faith is truly uh, genuine. The purpose of the book of First Peter, uh, as is stated, I think fairly. Um, um fairly um um thoroughly fairly well fairly concisely maybe a better way of saying it over in chapter 5 of 1 Peter Peter says I have written all of these things to you so that you may know something the thing he wants them to know uh there in verse number 12 I've written you written briefly to you exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God stand firm in it so that's Peter's um point of writing this book. One, to inform them, to exhort them, to declare to them so they know fully that the grace that they're standing in is the is the true grace of God. Now, when you read a statement like that, you got to train your brain to think, the, think, think what's the alternative. If this is not the true grace of God, what is? Um, so Peter, writing in AD, between say AD 60 and AD 64, somewhere in that time frame, writes and says, this is the true grace of God. Well, if what I have written to you is the true grace of God, see, the, 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 sometimes we think about this, we think of the true grace of God versus atheism. That, that's not, the, that's not the, the, the contrast here. You've got, a couple of, you've got a couple of options. You could be the true grace of God versus idolatry, versus the polytheism of, of, of Greek and, and Roman mythology. It could be that paganism. That, that, that could be your option. Because there were people that obviously believe that. The other option that's available to you uh, in later times, people would say, "Well, well, it's Gnosticism." Peter's right, but that's not normally what people say about the Book of First Peter. And we've talked about Gnosticism in some other uh, uh, settings as well. So, what's your what's your other option? And if you've heard me talk for more than about three minutes about the Bible, particularly the New Testament, you know what I'm about to tell you. The other option to the gospel, that the true grace of the gospel that Peter was declaring is the gospel that the Jews were declaring. Some were declaring that Jesus is not the Christ at all and that, uh, that, that Christ would arise and, and Jesus actually makes mention to the, you know, if, you, if somebody said to you, Christ is over here or he's out in the desert, don't believe them. Okay, so they would, they would proclaim their own messiahs. They would proclaim their own deliverers and restorers of the kingdom as the Roman armies approached, false Christ. And in so doing, they would deny the Christ that is the real Christ. They put up alternative Christ to the real Christ. Jesus says that's exactly what they would do. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when, he, when he's giving the, the, the description of the fall of the city, he says they'll put up false Christ. All right? So that's what I think he's talking about. He's talking about here, here's your, here are your options. Stand in the true grace of God or turn back and go to that former lifestyle, or compromise with the Judaizers, something along those lines. But it's Jewish. However you characterize it, it's Jewish. That's your other option. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ, or it's Judaism. So that, that's, where I, that's what I want you to see as you're reading through this book. Tribulation is coming. Um, the saints are in a period of trial, and so in that sense, a period of uh, decision. They're going to have to make a, a, a choice uh, about their path, all right? 
in the midst of great trial. I think it is interesting that one of the first imperative statements, one of the first calls to action is there in verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. I love the King James rendering here. Gird up the loins of your mind. Get ready. Get ready and be sober-minded and set your hope fully on the grace. Okay? I've written to you about what I've written to you briefly is the true grace. In order to get through these times, you're going to need to set your mind, gird up the loins of your mind fully on this grace, which means you have to be fully convinced that it is this grace. It is the true grace of God in order to get through the time that you're suffering in. So that that's the basics of, of what is behind um, um, this writing, uh, the, the, time, the, the, the historical setting into which 1 Peter is written. So that, that's where I want your mind to go as you're reading through this book. So let's turn our attention to what it says. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, if my name were Curtis Cates, and for those who never met Brother Curtis, uh, you missed a lot. Uh, but I remember, you know, we joked we joked in the first hour, at the close of the first hour, about how long I could uh, talk on Romans uh, and how long I could talk on the Holy Spirit and all that. I remember it was a, it was the first class we ever had with um, um, Curtis, and it was a I can't remember which epistle Paul it was. I could probably figure it out if I took the time to look because uh, Silas is mentioned in, in the in the greeting of the book, whichever one that is. I don't remember it off the top of my head here, but the first word of the book, or essentially the first word of the book, is Paul. And Brother Kate kicked his feet up on the desk. He read Paul. And he kicked his feet up on the desk, and he leaned back. And if, you, if you've never heard him, his voice and that little sing-songy voice he had, you miss again, you're missing something. He said, let's talk about Paul for a little while. <laughs> this was Monday. This was, it was a Monday, Wednesday, Friday class. It was Monday. And we got 10 weeks to get through this epistle, right? We got a quarter to get through it. He said, let's talk about Paul for a while. We talked about Paul Monday. We talked about Paul on Wednesday. We talked about Paul on Friday, and I believe we wrapped around until the next day. I think we started a little bit on Wednesday. Uh, and then I think is it, is it was Silas, it's either Timothy or Silas next in the greeting. And we got through all of that, like four days of notes on Paul. <laughs> and the man said, Let, let's talk about Timothy or was it, was it Silas. Let's talk, about, let's talk about Silas for a moment. Have mercy. I mean, it was another day or two. It was two full weeks before we got out of the greeting. It was two full weeks of the class, and we were still on the on the men listed in the greeting. I'm not going to do that to you, Peter. We're just. I'm not going to say let's talk about Peter for a while. I'm hoping you all know who Peter is. Uh, he does start out by saying, "I am an apostle of Christ Jesus." Um, sometimes we read through that sort of perfunctory, um, uh, because obviously we know who the apostles are. Um, it, you, Travis, you know, it may have been first and second Thessalonians, Travis, that very easily could be it. Uh, cause those, those two books obviously were to get in together and yeah. And Curtis Cates did teach that class to us. So pr- you're probably right, Travis. I bet it was first Thessalonians. Um, but we take that as some, somewhat perfunctory. Obviously we know who the apostles are and so on. Uh, that was not necessarily known in, um, in, in, in every circle. Uh, there were people who claimed to be an apostle. Paul refers to the super apostles or the chief apostles in 2 Corinthians 11 and following. Uh, the church at Ephesus, which this book is at least partially addressed to, 
um, try, you know, they're commended for trying those who claim to be an apostles and were not. So the, the proclamation and the establishment of apostolic credentials was a, a very much important thing here in the first century. And so this title is necessary to make sure we, that we have properly identified the man that is writing this book. So that, that is not just a, uh, a formality here. Uh, this, is, this is a necessary um, a statement of apostolic authority in a first century context. I mean, this is the book of First Peter. I'm sure he wrote things that we don't have access to and that were not preserved for us through history. But in terms of uh, inspired books that were intended to be kept, this is the first one. And so we need to know that this is directly uh, who comes from um, from Peter. Um, verse The latter part of verse 1, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. Now, I'm going to spend a lot of time here because we did talk about it some yesterday in the introduction. Uh, but just by, by rehearsing, I believe this this scattering, um, uh, strangers, I think, as, as Travis pointed out yesterday, I think the King James has the word strangers that may be under the uh, exiles back there. Uh, but this dispersion, obviously a cast back to the Old Testament time of the dispersion of the nation of Israel during the time of the Assyrian captivity and subsequent to that uh, Babylonian and, and Persian captivities. Uh, I believe this is a reference to Acts chapter 8. They that therefore were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. Those people of Acts 2, as we talked about yesterday, had gathered in the city of Jerusalem for Pentecost. Some of them were converted. I'm going to guess many of them stayed because Acts 6, you have Hellenistic widows that are numbered in the church, and those Hellenistic widows would have come from these lands that are described here in, in this passage. My guess would be that when the persecution comes of Acts chapter 8, those people who are gathered, scattered back to their previous lands, and it's those people in particular that Peter is writing this book to. Um, I do want to pause for a moment and notice again this term elect. Um, I'm, I am not prepared to state um, that uh, uh, Teresa asked, wasn't there another si Simon? Uh, you, you are correct about that, uh, uh, Teresa. The, the word, that, that name was a fairly common name. And so, yes, you will find other Simons mentioned as well. Uh, that's, a, that's a good point. So we have to properly identify who Peter is. Um, the, the elect um, statement here, as I was about to say, I, I don't know that I could say in every single context that the word, of elect, the word elect is always Jewish. I will tell you this, uh, when I read the word elect, my mind immediately thinks Jewish. That, that's, the, that, that's the first layer of consideration that goes through my brain when, when I'm talking about the term election in the New Testament. Um, as we saw in Romans chapter 8, and yeah, can't, can't study the Bible long before you get to Romans, go back to Romans chapter 8. Uh, when we got here in verse number 28, for, for we know that those who, who love God, all things work together for, the, for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Uh, I tried my best to establish for you that that is a reference to, to the Jews that were called according to, to the purpose, to the eternal purpose, to the accomplishment of the mystery, and so on. And then it says about those, about them, for those whom he foreknew, he predestined, and then he conformed to be the enemy of the Son, and so on. And then uh, you also have then, he, those he predestined, he called. Those that he called, he justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. He then refer, he says to them, if God be for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, gave, us, uh, gave, gave him up for us, uh, uh, for us all. And then he says, verse 33, who shall bring any charge to God's elect? 
See, I don't think he changed audience. I don't think he changed audiences between verse 28 and verse 33. And I do think verse 28 in that context is Jewish. So I, I don't know that I could prove it universally and without question. So 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 that it would be above about above question. So this is I try to tell you when this is when I, when it's completely Jonathan 101, and I'm just thinking off the top of my head here, something like that, or just you know, of my own surmisings and opinions. I don't think this is quite Jonathan 101, um, but I do think there is um, um, a, a when Peter writes to other Jews and refers to them as being, I mean, that's a good way of saying it. When Peter, who is commissioned to take the gospel to the circumcision, as we looked at yesterday in Galatians 2, when Peter writes to people of the dispersion and he refers to them as elect exiles, I don't know that the, the, Peter as an author and Jewish individuals scattered throughout the first century world would have read that term elect and they would have thought about it the same way that you and I think about it. They would have thought about Old Testament promises. Their mind would be predisposed to go back to the election of the Old Testament. God chose you. I didn't choose you because you were the greatest of the nations, but you were among the least of the nations. That I believe that's where their minds would go. And so those that he foreknew, those that he predestined, those that he predestined to be conformed into the image of the Son, that in their mind would be, we, we are the natural tree. So while I don't know that I can prove it exhaustively, meaning that if you do a word study on elect and you bring me the word elect and election or, or, or the various forms of it, and you put it in front of me and you say, okay, Jonathan, go through every one of these and tell me, show me how each one of those is Jewish. I don't know that I can do that to full satisfaction. I want That's my caveat to the introduction here. However, I do think in this instance that as we have, as I said, as we have a Jewish, a heavily Jewish book written to a Jewish audience, that if you know if this isn't this this is shorthand to describing the Jews, um, maybe a good way of thinking about it. So I do think he's talking here about the elect exiles, Jewish individuals who have fulfilled their role in the mystery of God. They were called according to the purpose. The purpose was, of course, to bring the Christ into the world, the mystery. And they are participants in the completion of that election, the completion of that mystery. And because of that, they have been dispersed. If they had chosen not to follow Jesus, these individuals, maybe they could have stayed in Jerusalem. Maybe they wouldn't be uh, uh, dispersed out through the world, you know, so on. That They wouldn't be who they are. They wouldn't be strangers even amongst their own people. They would be just Jews. But because of the choices that they've made, they are now strangers. They're exiles. They have no home. They can't live among the Gentiles because the Gentiles won't have them. They can't live among the Jews because the Jews will no longer have them. They are dispersed and they are exiles, and they're exiles because they have fulfilled the calling of their election. God called the Jews to bring the Christ into the world, of course, with the idea that the Jews would be the ones who would first respond to him. He came into his own. His own did not receive him. They should have, though. His own should have received him. Anyway, anyways, that's 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 what I think our audience is, and I think that's what the word election there means. Um, obviously, you're free to draw your own conclusions about it. Just, uh, yep, you're free to. 
Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Uh, we pulled up a map uh, yesterday. I think I still have that map pulled up um, just very quickly, just by way of uh, seeing it on the screen again. You can see that area of the world to which Peter is writing. Uh, it is all of that area in, in, uh, in what would be now modern-day Turkey. Uh, Asia on the west coast, Bithynia and Pontus, well, Galatia kind of runs through the center section up to the north. Pontus and Bithynia, the very, the very northern part of it. Uh, Cappadocia there on the eastern side of um, of that portion of, of the world. So that's where, where uh, Peter is writing uh, this book to. He says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now let me add again another you know hit to back to what I was just saying. This term elect exiles and the dispersion, all of that according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Well, I, I would say one more time, which arrow do I need to hit here? I need to, um, I would say one more time, that sounds an awful lot, an awfully lot, a lot like, let me see, <laughs> I talk for a living. That sounds a lot like Romans eight twenty eight and following. This is done according to the foreknowledge of God. Those whom he foreknew, if you follow the reasoning down, those whom he foreknew ultimately are the elect. Well, that's exactly, and that's Romans 8.28 and then Romans 8.33. That's exactly what we have here. You are, you are the elect because God foreknew you, right? God foreknew you. So you are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Understand, understand at least what I believe Peter is trying to establish here. Peter is trying to establish for these individuals, the very first topic that we're going to come across is that your faith is genuine. And then we're going to see his first command is that you have to have your hope set fully on the thing that you have followed, on the grace that you have followed. That's what we're trying to argue for. So what we're doing here in the greeting. These greetings are not perfunctory, as I, as I talked about Paul, Peter, an apostle. These greetings are not perfunctory. We are trying to lay out we are, the reason the reason his audience is referred to in the way that they are is tied directly to the message of the book. You need to see, start seeing that as best you can, and sometimes it's not always immediately determinable. I understand that. I, I don't. I'm not saying I've got everyone nailed, nailed down perfectly. But it is amazing how often the opening of a Bible book will tell you exactly what is going on and why the book is framed the way that it is. Matthew. Let's go to Matthew chapter 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Why the son of David, the son of Abraham? Answer that question and you understand the, the purpose of the book of Matthew. He's writing to Jews. He's writing about the kingship of Jesus. In order to prove that Jesus is the king of the Jews, how do you do it? Well, he's got to be the son of Abraham. He's got to be a Jew. He's got to be the son of David. He's got to have the right royal line. Son of David, son of Abraham. That's the point. Um, Luke's account. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of things that have been accomplished among us, 
just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, seem good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have the certainty uh, concerning the things that you have been taught. That one just flat out says it. Here's an orderly or an account in order. So Luke is largely chronological to give you the certainty of what you've been taught, Theophilus. John, same point. Now, John sort of tells you at the end, these things that are written were written so that you might have faith in him. But that explains the opening, right? In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, that you might that you might believe that he is the son of God and believe and have life in his name. Connected. And it just goes and goes and goes. We we spent a lot of time in Romans. Um, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel, which he promised beforehand through his prophets, Jewish, concerning his son who was descended from David, same as Matthew. So he's uh, uh, um, uh, prophets and David, according to the flesh, was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Jesus, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. All the way through there. It's Jewish. We're talking about the obedience of faith, about the resurrected Lord, and so on. The openings matter. Okay, we, we could go through this perhaps even more fully. What is Peter trying to get his audience to see with this opening? You are the elect. If his audience is Jewish, which I believe it is, did most of the Jews believe or not believe? Most of the Jews did not believe in Jesus. Most of the Jews rejected Jesus. Okay. What's that mean? Well, that means that if you're a Jewish individual living in the first century, most of your friends, most of your relatives, most of your neighbors, all your most of your countrymen think you have just lost your mind. What is going on with those with those people? I mean, you know, like it's it's like when we gather for our family dinners at Thanksgiving, and and Uncle Larry doesn't show up because Uncle Larry's off doing something crazy, right? And we, and you sit around, and you shake your head. What is going on with Larry? They probably did something at Passover very similar to, to the to the three family members that rejected Moses and took upon this 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 Jesus idea. And the and 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 the whole family is sanctimonious back toward the the to to, to uh, the person that went over to, to follow Jesus, and the whole pressure and the whole weight now for thirty years has been leaning on you. Peter starts by saying, "You are elect. The fact that you are a stranger or an exile, the fact that you are part of a dispersion, is not a problem, because all of this was according to the foreknowledge of God the Father." This was always the plan. This is a part of prophecy. You can go back and you can read it. Even in Romans 9 through 11, that section that we just finished up a few weeks ago, a remnant shall receive the grace. There will always be that remnant of Israel. Branches are going to be broken off. This is all a part of the foreknowledge of God. What evidence do you have that it is according to the foreknowledge of God? If you're a Jew and you want people to know, or no, 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 you want you 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 need for your own self to know 
that the path that you have chosen is the right path, what possible thing could you look to in the first century to say, to help you understand that indeed what you have done is the right thing? in sanctification of the Spirit. Now, I actually think this is a reference to the Holy Spirit here. About half the time you see, you see that, I'll think, I, you'll say, I think I don't think it's the Holy Spirit. I think it is here. In sanctification of the Spirit. Now, we spent some time um, a few weeks ago talking about the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. I actually posted an article on, on the website um, and um, on uh, that I've written on the topic of sanctification of the Spirit. Sanctification of the Spirit has nothing to do with salvation. Nothing. All right? Turn over with me to uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. The link to the article in front of me, but it's there, and I would, I would uh, encourage you to go to the digitalbiblestudy.org and find it where you can talk about this topic more fully. But in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul says this, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. We went through at length some discussion about does the order here matter? Because you are the first fruits to be saved, and two things are noted. Sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Now we talked we talked about a, 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 a Calvinistic view of this. They believe word order matters. You have to be sanctified by the Holy Spirit. At that, that's the unconditional election that comes upon you and the irresistible grace that comes upon you at that moment. Um, and that precedes your ability to believe the truth. Okay. Um there is inside Churches of Christ, there are the word-only individuals. To them, word order, word order does not matter, and this is just a statement, this is a, a statement of emphasis. How are you sanctified by the Spirit? Sanctify them by thy truth, thy word is truth. The Spirit sanctifies you through the word of truth. And so what you have here is the sanctification of the Spirit and belief in the truth simply being a matter of emphasis. It's the two parts of the same process. The Spirit provides you the word, you believe the word, you are sanctified. Okay. And I believe that's a biblical doctrine. I don't have a problem with the doctrine. I don't think that I don't believe that's what this is talking about. To me, the critical part here is the term first fruits. Um, first fruits to be saved. Well, not in terms of overall chronological order, because well, the book of first first Thessalonians is written sometime around AD 50. In AD 50, quite a few people have already been saved, even quite a few Gentiles. Because Paul has already, or Peter's already baptized the house of Cornelius, Acts 10 and 11. Um, the first missionary journey of Paul, Acts 13 and 14, has already happened. Uh, the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 has already happened. Paul's then traveled back on his second missionary journey through some lands. And then it's not until we get later into uh, Acts 16, 17 that Paul receives the Macedonian call and comes over into the region of Thessalonica and then down to Philippi and, and, and you know, from there, Athens and Corinth and so on, Acts 16, Acts 16, 17, 18. So they're not overall the first fruits to be saved, 
but they are the first fruits to be saved in a particular spot. The first place Paul stops as he makes that journey, well, stops at Philippi in Acts 16, and then in Acts 17, stops at Thessalonica. So among the first converts of Europe are these Thessalonians, and still fairly early among the conversion of the Gentiles. That's what he's talking about. You are the first fruits of your countrymen, of your people, of your region, of your nation. You're the first reaping of fruit that God has taken out of Thessalonica and out of Europe and so on. That's who you are. Now, how do we know that that is a valid choice? How do we know that God approved of the taking of the gospel to the Gentiles and specifically the Gentiles of this region? We know that through the sanctification by the Spirit. The presence of the Holy Spirit endorsed the Macedonian call. The Spirit sanctified, set apart these Gentiles, these European Gentiles, to be saved. He endorsed the actions. Now, is that, is that established anywhere else in the Bible? Is that concept established anywhere else in Scripture? Yes, it is. Established over in Acts 15, Jerusalem Council, where we discuss the salvation of the Gentiles. Verse number six, we start. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice. There's our word choice. That by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the word of the gospel and believe. And God who knows the heart, God who knows the heart, bore witness to them. God bore witness to the Gentiles. How? By giving them the Spirit just as he did to us. Question, when did God give the Gentiles the Holy Spirit? See, this is critical. We believe we get the Holy Spirit after we're baptized, right? That's what we believe because that's what Acts 2 says. Okay. When did the Gentiles receive the Holy Spirit? Happens in Acts 10. It happens up here in verse uh, 44 through 47. The Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, uh, and the believers from among the circumcised Jews that were with Peter were amazed. They couldn't believe that the Gentiles had received the Holy Spirit because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. To get back to our first hour discussion, for all the confusion there is about um, Acts 2 and the gift of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2, how on earth do you miss it? The phrase, by the way, is only used two times in the Bible. The phrase gift of the Holy Spirit is used here, and it's used in Acts 2, and it's used in Acts 10. This is what Acts 10 says about it. The gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles, even on the Gentiles. That's astonishing. The Gentiles have this? Look at the next word, for. How did the, how did the believers that were among the circumcised, why were they amazed? How did they know the gift of the Holy Spirit, which I'm told is after baptism and some kind of internal uh, 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 validation of my faith that has no external expression? That, that's what people inside the Church of Christ tell me all the time. How on earth could I stand there and watch you prior to your baptism receive the gift of the Holy Spirit with any way of knowing that you had done that? Four, 
they were hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God. They received the gift of the Holy Spirit for they were speaking in tongues. I got a great idea. I've got a great idea. Why don't we let the gift of the Holy Spirit mean speaking in tongues or a, a comparable gift? Why don't, we, why don't we just let it mean that? Because that was what was going on in Acts 2, and that's the thing that is directly attached to it in Acts 10. Boy, that'd be a whole lot simpler than all the stuff we go through. If we just let the Bible define its own terms, that'd be real easy, wouldn't it? Oh, I know there's about 17 different reasons that can't be true, but it just says it. It just says it. And the phrase is only used twice. It's not like you can, you've got, it's not like we got to piece together 15 different passages. It's just two. All right. Sorry. I'm getting off the topic. When does this happen though? Okay. Verse 47 says, can we withhold water from baptizing these people? It happened prior to their water baptism. The house of Cornelius received the gift of the spirit prior to water baptism. Now, that, only, that, that allows some denominationalists to say, well, see, these people were saved clearly because the world cannot receive the Spirit. John chapter, was that 14, 16? The world, the world cannot receive the Spirit. And here, clearly, they have received the Spirit, so therefore, they must already be saved. Okay? Let's look at chapter 11. Peter and the brothers, they come to Judea. The Gentiles, they heard that the Gentiles had received the word. So Peter goes up to Jerusalem. The circumcision party. That, that, is, that is a strong statement to me right there. The circumcision party. Now, I don't know if this is Luke, you know, in some kind of almost anachronistic um, way, talking about people, you know, the, 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 the progenitors, the, 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 the early days of the Judaizers, did this party just come about because Peter talked to the Gentiles, or was this party already in place? Uh, thank you, thank you, Travis. World cannot receive the Spirit, John 14, 17. Don't have time to trace that rabbit down, but the word receive there doesn't mean what you think it means or what they think it means. Um, it means to seize or to hold because the world because the, because they cannot see him. If they can't see him, they can't grab a hold of him like they did Jesus or that, like they were about to do to Jesus. That's what John 14 is talking about. So where did this circumcision party arise from? Was it already in place? Or is, is Luke, several years later, writing back and looking at this group that ultimately would become the Judaizers? I don't know, but they're here. The circumcision party already exists. Even, well, it, it either springs into existence it, it existence the moment uh, the, the Gentiles are, are baptized, or perhaps it already existed to ensure that Jews continue to circumcise everybody Um and not abandon the customs of Moses. I think either of those is possible. Not the point. But they are very concerned about circumcision. And they come to Peter and say, hey, wait a minute. You went into the uncircumcised men and ate with them. Peter explained. And here's a very critical phrase. You need to have this phrase underlined in your Bible, or at least in your mind, so you know where it is. What we have here, it sounds like Peter, while Peter was still saying these things, it sounds like Peter is in the middle of his sermon. And at some point in the middle of his sermon, the Gentiles receive the Holy Spirit and begin to speak in tongues, which would lead you to think, if you're a denominationalist, that Jesus, or that, that, that Peter begins to preach. The Spirit here, and as he says earlier in chapter 10, 
I'm here to teach you words by, whereby you might be saved. So they're hearing the word. Holy Spirit moves on them, creates faith in them. They begin to speak in tongues somewhere in the middle of Peter's sermon. So they've heard the words they need to believe. And then all of a sudden, they receive the Spirit in response to those words. When Peter gets to Jerusalem, so this is, this by the way, this is Luke's telling of the events. Luke is just telling you what happened in the house. Peter is now essentially on trial. The circumcision party has pulled him aside and said, now, wait a minute. Why did you do this? That's not lawful. You, you'd, bet, you'd better, you got some explaining to do, Peter. Explain yourself. All right? You ever been pulled over by the police or, or had to testify in a trial? Do you, do you take real special care to make sure you're, you're getting all your facts exactly straight? That's what Peter's doing in Acts 11. So this is Peter's, not Luke's. Luke records it. Peter is telling it. And specifically, Luke says, Peter was careful here. Peter told these things in order. Here's exactly what happened. I saw the vision. What God has made clean, do not call unclean. This happened three times. It was drawn up into heaven. At that very moment, three men arrived, and they sent to me, sent to me, says, uh, the, Caesarea. the Spirit told me to go with them, rather, making no distinction between the Jew and the Gentile. Six brothers went with me, the ones that were amazed that the Spirit were, the, 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 the Gentiles were speaking in tongues. We entered this man's house. He told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter, and he will declare a message to you by which you will be saved, you and your household. So there's the words that we're going to use to save these people. Verse 15 is very critical here. As I began to speak, Luke's characterization of that is in, in, in chapter 10, verse 44 is, while he was saying these things. The in-order account of Acts 11 says, as I began to speak. Okay? When do you begin to speak? On the 50th word? On the 100th word? 500th word? Which word begins your speech? I got a great idea. How about the first word? As I began to speak. So before they had heard the message by which they would be saved. Before they ever heard the message, the Holy Spirit fell on them. Sanctification of the Spirit preceded belief of the truth. Back to Acts 15. Peter says that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Words by which you might be saved. A message by which you and your household might be saved. And God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. When did he give them the Holy Spirit? As I began to speak the Holy Spirit fell on them as on us at the beginning, Acts eleven fifteen. He gave them the Spirit, and at that moment in time, he bore witness to them. The six men who were with Peter were amazed. Peter then says in Acts 11, 
They've received the like gift as we did. Who was I then that I could withstand God? What finally convinced Peter and the six men that were with him that their mission to the Gentiles was just was that before or at the beginning of Peter's speech, speech, as I began to speak, God bore witness that the message that I was about to declare to them was okay to declare to them. He bore witness to the Gentiles by putting his stamp of approval on the salvation of the Gentiles, and that stamp of approval was the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the tongues. That's how you knew. That's how Peter knew that it was okay to preach the the gospel to the Gentiles. The seal of the Spirit is what that is. God is putting his stamp of approval on you as a Christian. Cornelius. And it is always tied to the miraculous. I don't need a seal. I've got the Bible. They did. Now, back in Thessalonica, you were the first fruits. In other words, it's not been established yet that you have the right to salvation. You're the first ripe reaping of the harvest that God is going to take. Just as he did in the house of Cornelius, what started that harvest? Sanctification by the Spirit. Paul went into those cities, worked miracles among them. The confirmatory gifts of the Spirit were present, and bang, there was a confirmation by the Spirit that these individuals had access to the gospel. And after that, after that confirmation was established, they then believed the truth. Same exact process. I'm running out of time here. We've got three minutes. Let me go to Romans 15 very quickly. Then I want to get back to 1 Peter and show you how this makes connection to 1 Peter. Okay? In 1 Peter, or in in, in Romans uh, 15, Paul says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you're full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Sounds awful lot like the miraculous. Some points I've written written very boldly unto you by way of reminder, because the grace of God given to me to be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable sanctified by the Holy Spirit. How? Because you're full of all goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Same thing. The offering of the Gentiles is acceptable to God, evidenced by the fact that the Holy Spirit has instructed them and and, and filled them with the gift of the Spirit. That's how it's applied to the Gentiles. What's different in Peter is that Peter applies it to the Jews. You are elect. The fact that you're you're in exile, the fact that you're dispersed, the fact that your countrymen have rejected you, the fact that you have no connection to your history, your heritage, and that don't let that bother you, because all of this is according to prophecy. God foreknew this would happen. It was part of the eternal purpose. It was part of that remnant concept. A remnant will be saved out of Israel. How do you know? How do you know? When all of your countrymen, when all the world is turned against you, how do you know that your choice is valid? Because you have the sanctification of the Spirit. Just as the Gentiles relied upon the presence, the miraculous presence of the Holy Spirit in the face of the Jews, guess what Jews did in face of non-Christian Jews? What was their evidence? that their choice was right, not when confronted by the Judaizers, 
which the Gentiles would have been confronted with, but when confronted with their own people, what was the evidence that their path was right? Or I guess you could say against Judaizers who were trying to convince them they still had to keep the law of Moses. That, that could also be a possibility here. But what was their evidence? Exactly the same evidence. The seal of the Spirit. Sanctification of the Spirit, the presence of the prophetic gifts, the gift of the Spirit, the speaking in tongues and all that went along with it. Peter is trying to remind them. This is the true grace of God. And on the very first, the, ver the first two verses of this text, he says, I'm an apostle. I brought to you the true gospel because I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. What you have chosen in obeying the gospel has caused you to be exiled from your countrymen, your, your strangers in a lost and dying world. But it was always part of God's plan. You are the elect. You are the chosen. You are the ones who have fulfilled your destiny. All of this was a part of the plan of God, and you know that because the Holy Spirit is working through you right now. He has chosen you. Your offering is acceptable. You know all things, and you are able to instruct one another. Same concept, and we're going to see that unfold in the book of 1 Peter, over in chapter 4, if nowhere else. Okay? That's the setting of 1 Peter. That's our audience. That's what we're trying to establish. Do not read through these openings too quickly. They are powerful and they are poignant. So my time is up, uh, and I will stop. We have several other programs, as I mentioned, in the open today. I hope you'll hang around and be a part of those. Uh, and we have uh, Todd Creighton with us tonight on the Connect meeting at 7 p.m., so tune in and uh, be a part of that as well. And I will see you back here, Lord willing, tomorrow morning for the next edition of From the Deep End. Until then, go out and make your day a great one for God. Have a good day, everybody.